Growing up. Anybody in here have growing up stories? Okay. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> growing up, there was a, <clears throat> a sound that struck fear in my heart. And it was the garage door opening. Does anyone know where I'm headed with this yet? Okay. At the moment that the garage door opened, my head was flooded with everything that I knew I should have done that day. My head was flooded with everything that I had forgotten about until that moment. And on top of that, I suddenly was flooded with fear about the things that I couldn't even think of. Like, where did I leave out a sock? What toys had I left out that I was supposed to have cleaned up? And perhaps worst of all, for a period of my life, I was uh, incessantly lying. And so along with the fear of, will my dad see all of the things I didn't do, was the fear, will my dad find out what I said I did and didn't do? There was, I remember specifically a moment, my dad was home. He had come home, he had sat down in the living room with my mom, and I had been lying about my math homework. I was homeschooled at the time, and for those of you who are homeschooled, you know that a lot of homeschooling is you kind of teach yourself, and then you report to your, your parents. And so I was reporting as having done all this math work. I think I've told this story before, but not, not this specific one. So I was lying, and, and my parents were in the living room. And now they, ha they could see the hall, and what I had to do was cross the hall to get to my math homework, because for some reason I knew that they were going to check it that night, and I had said I had done it, but I hadn't. So I don't know, I'm like eight or something at this point, and I don't know how to play it cool. So in my recollection, I literally... Like, I look like a suspicious raccoon, okay? Like, there's the hall, they can see it, and then I kind of dart across it. I literally remember, like, bending over a little bit, like, like this, like, okay? And I grab my homework from my desk, and then I try and go back. And, of course, that moment, my dad sees me, and, I mean, it's painted all over me. He calls me out, Paul, what are you doing? And I was caught, all right? I think I was grounded. That's usually what happened um, at that point. Um, but I, I hated being found out. And I hated that feeling of hiding. But I hated being found out a little bit more than that feeling of hiding my guilt and my shame. And it's interesting because we grow out of some of that, but we don't grow out of it fully, I don't think. This idea of trying to hide our guilt, and our shame. And what we see in the garden in Genesis 2 is exactly this. And so today we are jumping into Genesis 2, sorry, 3. We're well past Genesis 2. Everyone breathes a sign of, sigh of relief. We've been in Genesis since, uh, since January, I think. And we're getting close here, y'all. We're in Genesis 3. We're only going through chapter 3. And then we're going to do something different. But, uh, well, let me just tell you what I'm going to tell you today, Okay. We last week talked about Satan, specifically in the serpent, okay, and that temptation. Today, we're going to talk about the fall itself, okay? So we have the fall, and I have some visuals that I'm going to draw today, which is always exciting, right? Because you never know what you're going to get when Paul starts drawing. 
So uh, we have the fall. And the first thing we're going to talk about with the fall is that the sin that Adam and Eve commit at its heart is rebellion, okay? And this is at the heart of the fall. And then we're going to talk about the immediate effects, which I'm going to call the fall out. Okay, we have fall and we have fallout. That's what we're going to talk about today. And with fallout, what we're looking at is essentially this progression that we see in the text. And as we look at it, I want you to be thinking, do I see myself there to some degree too? Can I identify at all with what's going on with Adam and Eve in the garden? But what we're going to see is this progression from shame to fear to hiding slash excuses. That's just what we're going to to find as we read through this text. And we are going to examine that from a biblical perspective and try to put ourselves in this story. Adam and Eve get a bad rap, but honestly... If we were to put ourselves in that situation, I think we'll understand a little better why they did what they did, not to excuse them, but to put ourselves in just as much guilt as as they. What's at stake here? Um, Before I jump in, okay, we live in in an upside-down world, and there's a couple of ways that people in an upside-down world try to live in that world. All right, number one is they try to convince themselves that upside-down is normal and good. Everything wrong with the world, it's just normal. There's definitely problems, but we're just going to live in it. There's no right-side-up necessarily, so let's just make the best of being upside-down all the time, okay? We don't, we don't agree to that, okay? There's another problem with the world, and that is that the world is essentially bleeding out. Okay? There's pain, there's suffering, there's guilt, there's shame, and we need a solution to this. So people are, on the one hand, trying to figure out why everything's so twisted and why we ourselves are twisted, and on the other hand, they're trying to figure out how do we stop all of the suffering and the pain from, from happening, and they'll come up with all sorts of solutions for that, right? Genesis 3 is our answer for that question. Why is the world upside down and inside out? And what is the solution for the fact that the world is bleeding out? And by bleeding out, you guys know what bleeding out means? Bleeding out is when you have someone that's going to die in five minutes or less because they have some, something that's letting blood out of their body. I remember doing some uh, wilderness first aid, and they always said, find what's going to kill them in five minutes or less. That's your only job. You're not a physician, but if they're about to die, find what's causing them to die. That's the idea here. The world at large, apart from Jesus Christ, is bleeding out. And they need a solution, and they don't have one apart from Jesus. So what makes the world upside down? And what's the solution to the fact that we're bleeding out? Well, Genesis 3 actually provides both of those answers. Right smack in the beginning of, of the Bible, okay? So first of all, why are we upside down? Or what is, what is right side up? Both of those questions are answered. So you need to know Genesis 3 really well, and that's why we're going to spend some time on it. That's why we've been spending time on Genesis. But you personally need to know this chapter so you can go to it and explain to people why they are evil and why you're evil. Okay. Now, last week, 
we're going to jump right in here. Okay, the fall. We were talking about the serpent. I'm just going to kind of summarize what the serpent said, okay? Number one, the serpent wanted to dethrone God by undermining Eve's faith. And he did that little by little, right? He first kind of questions God. Did God actually say, right? He questions God. He also uh, misquotes God. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He twists God's words. And then the woman said to the serpent, now the woman goes along with it slightly, kind of misquoting God. But she shows that she does know what's prohibited. She knows that she's not supposed to eat this fruit. The serpent replies, you won't surely die. He just denies the truth entirely. And God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he is now deceiving the woman into thinking she's going to get something. It's a half-truth and a total lie is kind of the line that we used last week. And now we're really picking it up here. What's going to happen? All right? The trap has been laid, and what is the woman going to do? So, verse 6, are you with me? 3-6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I'm going to do a little editing as we go here, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And we'll pause there. First question I want to ask is, why did Eve sin? What's going on there? Now, we already heard, basically, that her faith in God has been undermined. Now, an important text that I want to point you to, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and there's a few verses at the end of chapter 2. All right, now, you know what? I might even just go there. It's that important because we're going to refer to it a few times. So I would write this in the, on the side of your Bible um, because it, 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 this is the Apostle Paul explaining what happened in the garden to some degree. Now, it's in the process, he's in the process of arguing about, making an argument for why women should not um, teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. Um, that's verse 12. But I want to uh, point out verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, okay? And this is important. For Adam was born first and then Eve, and then verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay? This is giving us kind of like some insight into why Eve sinned, okay? And what the difference was between Eve's sinning and Adam sinning, okay? All right, we're going to hop back here. Okay, so just essentially, I want you to remember this. Eve was deceived, Adam was not, okay? So far, all of this is talking about Eve, okay? This is all about Eve. All right, I want to point out something. Good for food. This is the first thing that the woman's... Oh, I didn't mean to draw on it. This is the first thing that the woman saw. Okay, question for the room. You can, uh, you, can, you can shout it out. Is this true? I have a, a nod. I have a yes. Some people are not quite sure. All right, I'm going to argue that it's true. Why? Well, because we were told in chapter 2, well, we were told in chapter 1 that everything God made was very good. That includes this tree and this fruit. We were told in chapter 2 that every tree that God planted was pleasant to the sight and good for food. This exact same phrase, which means we're good. She's right. She saw that the tree was actually good for food. Okay, this is why I don't think that the tree was poisoned. 
I think it was a perfectly good fruit. I think that when she ate it, it tasted good. It could have been a fig or something. It could have been a pomegranate. It could have been an apple. So it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. This is also true, all right, for the same argument. Uh, clearly, I mean, this is just an assessment that she makes. This is a beautiful tree, right? Uh, now, the question might come up, how did she know that it was good for food? And I wonder, I just have to wonder some things, okay? And I think sometimes wondering, even if we get to places that are not confirmed in Scripture, it opens up our imagination, okay? So I wondered, how would she know it was good for food? Well, like, if I was the serpent, I'd be like, look, this tastes great, <laughs> right? Look, I'm fine, something like that, okay? There's no poison, it's good. All right, well, one way or another, she saw that it was good for food. She saw that it was beautiful, just like everything else. All right, so that makes it that much more tempting. It looks great. Ah, but then she saw that the tree, and notice that this is kind of set apart. You have the repetition of the word, that the tree. Okay, so this third thing is suspicious. And she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now here's, I think, where we see the deception. Because notice... This is a little different than the knowledge of good and evil. It's kind of a, it, it, it's a couple steps past it, in my mind, where wisdom in Scripture is, is described clearly as the fear of the Lord. All right? Is this the fear of the Lord? No. So she is clearly misunderstanding at this point what this tree is offering her, and she thinks that it is something that it is not. So uh, it would be kind of like, well, the point I want to make with this is, yes, she was deceived, and at the same time, she was fully a transgressor. She was deceived in the sense that she thought this tree was going to give her something which it was not going to. However, she was still fully a transgressor, a sinner, because she was not deceived about the fact that God did not want her to do it. She was not deceived about the fact that God prohibited it. That was still crystal clear in her mind. And so what she did was still entirely sin. She was just deceived into, what, into thinking that what she was doing was going to benefit her somehow. You just follow me on that? It's kind of like, um, okay, you know the, I think Red Bull got into some trouble because they, they had a slogan that said, Red Bull gives you wings. Have you guys ever heard about that? Someone actually brought a lawsuit against them and said, false advertising. And they, I think they had to make the argument like, uh, this is clearly, you know, an exaggeration, all right? But let's say... Someone, I told my son Thomas, who's three years old, all right, the Red Bull, do not eat the Red Bull, all right? It's going to make you go crazy. I don't want you to eat that. Please do not drink the Red Bull, okay? Then someone comes along and says, Thomas, you should eat the Red Bull. Red Bull gives you wings, all right? Now, in a sense, that's true. It's going to make him go crazy with caffeine, all right? But in another sense, Thomas thinks he's saying, oh, it'll literally give me wings, I want to drink the Red Bull, all right? And he goes, he knows it's wrong, but he's deceived, and he takes and he drinks of the Red Bull, all right? That's the idea here, all right? Deceived, but still entirely, Eve understands that what she's doing is sin. And that's why Paul says, Eve was deceived and became a transgressor, right? She didn't accidentally sin, but she was deceived into sin, okay? It made it, if you will, easier for her to sin. Okay. How about Adam? I'm going to do a couple things here, and this is how I kind of work through a text. Verbs are really important, and oftentimes you'll see something when you kind of set them apart. So I'm going to just kind of edit this as I go. 
And by the way, if you're looking for a new study technique, um, taking a text like this, copy-pasting it, and then working with it actually can help you a lot in understanding a text. Okay, look what happens here. There's just this string of verbs. Boom, 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 boom. So fast, so easy, okay? She saw this, this, and this. She took the fruit. She ate it. She gave some to her husband. He ate it. Just like that, okay? I think the emphasis by the writer putting it like this is just showing, look how easy it was, in a sense. Look how simple it was. Like the pin on a grenade, it's easy, and then there's a grenade, right? That's kind of, I mean, it's like boom, 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 and we can hold our breath on what's going to happen next. All of this was talking about Eve, but what about Adam, okay? This is all we get about Adam, and frankly, I'm sitting here asking the question, why? Why did Adam sin if he was not deceived the same way that Eve was? Do you guys follow me? So that, this is what it means, okay? Because Paul specifically says in first, again, 1 Timothy 2, Paul was not deceived. So then why did he take the fruit? Well, he has to think about it just for a second. Well, the reason that we give, we are given, is pretty much that she gave it to him. And then the excuse that he gives to God later on is, she gave it to me. This woman who you made to be with me, this helper, this companion that you gave me, she's the one who gave me the fruit. So, I think it is a link to their relationship that we, we can actually find a word of caution here, okay? I find there's another interesting thing later on in chapter 3 where God calls on Adam. He's actually, he's pronouncing essentially curses on each one. And when he gets to Adam, he says, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Okay. Do you see her speaking in the narrative we're given? You might assume that she just kind of hands it to him and he takes it. But I don't think that's exactly what happens here. I think there is a conversation taking place probably. Just because it doesn't give us that conversation does not mean that there was not more involved here. So think of it like this. Eve, you can almost put a break right here, okay? Just enter into this moment where she gave, oh, excuse me, she took of its fruit and she ate. She has eaten. She has crossed a line that Adam has not yet crossed. That's how it's depicted. She took, she ate, and she gave some to her husband, and he ate. Now, maybe we shouldn't press the point too far, but it seems like she has crossed over, and at this point, essentially invites him over, okay? Now, he's not deceived. He sees, perhaps, on her face that she's not crazy different, but maybe she, he sees there's something different there. And then she starts to say, look, the fruit's good. Look, I didn't die. I, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know exactly what's happening to me, but something's a little bit different. Take, take it. Try it. You try it too. You're not going to stay over there, are you? Think of, now, now put yourself in Adam's shoes. Your companion for life, your best friend, in fact, your only friend, has just crossed over a line. I don't know if you, when you were kids, 
I had a, you know, some friends that were you know, a little more risque than me. So when, we, you know, when there was a line, I was not the first one to cross that line where I knew, okay, no trespassing sign, and there's a fence, but you know, we lost our, you know, it's kind of like, uh, what's that movie? Anyway, the ball went over the fence. Are we going to go get it? Sandlot is what came to mind. Okay, but you get the idea. One person goes over, and then it's like, okay, are you going to come? And to not go over is to, to some degree, sever the relationship. Suddenly, Adam has to choose, am I going to follow God, or am I going to follow this incredible gift that God gave me? It's not as simple as it might seem right off the bat, right? Suddenly, it's like, okay, I can understand why he was tempted to follow. Uh, now, this should... If, I'm just going to take a time out really quick and just say, this is telling for the power of relationships and specifically the power of marriage and, and the sexual relationship, okay? This is why Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is why in the Old Testament, they were so, there, there were very strong prohibitions against marrying, especially foreign women, who did not leave their idols behind, but brought them with them. I like how Francis Schaeffer actually said it. Um, and I'm just going to read it because I was like, you know what? This is really good. Francis Schaeffer. There we go. Two great drives are built into man. The first is his need for a relationship to God, and the second is his need for a relationship to the opposite sex. A special temptation is bound up with this sexual drive. How many young women are, are there who are faithful as Christians until they come to a certain age and feel with their whole being, without ever analyzing it, the need for marriage, and then are swept over into marrying a non-Christian man. And likewise, how many men are there who are faithful until they feel the masculine drive, and they give up their faithfulness to God by marrying a woman who carries them into spiritual problems for the rest of their life? I look upon such young men and young women as I see them going through this, and I cry for them, because in a way there is no greater agony than suddenly to fall in love, and then to realize that one must say no to this natural drive because it leads, in that particular case, to a severing of our greater relationship, our relationship with God. While what happened in the Garden of Eden was a space-time historic event, the man-woman relationship, and the force of temptation it must have presented to Adam is universal. So this is just a, a, a moment I want to take and just say, be careful who you date. And by all means, be careful who you marry, okay? Uh, because, as we've talked about, marriage is permanent, and it's meant to be so, but it's also this incredibly intimate relationship. And there's nothing worse, I can only imagine it, frankly, than having your, your primary devotion to God not be shared by your spouse. I can't, I can't really imagine that. Because that is, when it comes down to it, the heart of Christian marriage, is that you are both serving the Lord together. So I think Genesis just actually gives us an example of a warning to that end. All right. Back online. Adam sins. All right, back offline, really quick. There's another point to be made here. That this second point to be made... is that 
when we look at both of their sin, it is essentially rebellion against God. And that is important. Because we can often look at sin and define it by consequences. If we look at the sin of eating this fruit, we might, if we were, if we were measuring how bad a sin is by how badly it hurts the people around us, then this is not that bad. You guys following me? Oftentimes, we measure sin in terms of, or at least we're tempted to, and the world wants us to, measure sin based on, okay, how badly did we hurt someone else? Okay, murder is obviously taking a life. Anger is not necessarily taking a life. Therefore, murder is worse than anger. Now, I would agree with that statement, but we're missing something which Jesus brings out, right, and saying, actually, the one who has anger has murdered his brother in his heart. There's something deeper going on which actually puts them on the same playing field. And what is that same playing field? Well, it's at the root of any sin, is rebellion against God. So if you were to put all the sins in the world on a scale, okay, and say worst over here, least worst over here, I think eating the apple, or oh, there it is, it's not an apple, but I did it. Eating the fruit actually ends up on this side of the scale, all right? It was beautiful. It was actually good for them to some degree. It was good for food. It wasn't poisonous. It was actually nutritious, all right? So what was wrong? Well, I think God specifically set it up that way so that we would see exactly what was wrong. It, did, it didn't really have that much to do with the fruit itself. It had everything to do with disobeying God and ultimately rebelling against God, betraying God. That's at the root of this sin. So Eve basically chose herself over God. She said, and that we could, we could perhaps point to the sin of pride. I want to be like God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take his place. And Adam said, I want God's gifts more than I want God himself. I'm going to elevate a gift to the level of an idol. And I'm going to choose it over God. But at the root of both of those is I choose me over God, okay? It's as if they both signed a document that said, death to God, long live man. They might as well have done that, okay? And that is why sin is so serious. This, so far, we've been talking about is the fall. Sin and rebellion. And so I'm trying to make the point here that ultimately what we see in the garden is two individuals who sinned and by that sin are rebelling against God. And we should understand, for us, like I said, I want you to be putting yourself in the story as much as possible. When we choose any sin, the first reason that it is sin is because it is rebellion against God. In fact, that is so overwhelmingly the point of sin that when David sins with Bathsheba, murders a man, and commits adultery, he says, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Now, that's a, only a slight exaggeration, but David gets the point, right? The, the problem with sin is not primarily horizontal. It's primarily vertical, your relationship with God. And when you choose even something that you think is the smallest little sin, it is momentously 
rebellious. It's defiant. And so, uh, if you were in church this morning, Jimmy Carter did a great job and was explaining that we have to take sin seriously. And this is one reason why we must take sin seriously. Because even what it, a so-called you know, white lie or, or, or small thing is ultimately defiance against God. Okay, so rebellion. Now, let's take a look at the fallout from the fall, okay? This is what we, what we would categorize as the fall. And then, just like there's these actions that just happened. She took the fruit, she ate, she gave some to her husband, and he ate. The repercussions fall out very similarly. And the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together. And they made themselves loincloths. What I want to point out here, again, we're, we're kind of working with, I'm going to bring it down here, okay? First we see shame. And that shame is connected to this, this idea of nakedness. From here on in scripture, nakedness is primarily associated with with shame and this desire to cover up and hide. And the reason we will find that nakedness leads to this feeling of wanting to hide is ultimately because of sin, and God is going to point that out in a second. We're also going to see fear, okay? Shame leads to fear, and fear ultimately leads to hiding. Now, we're about to talk about this in terms of their relationship with God, but let's take a moment and think about it again, on the horizontal level. So sin, shame, fear, hiding happens horizontally as well. And I think that's what we're seeing when the eyes of both were opened, meaning they saw some, some, a spiritual reality that they didn't see before, and they knew that they were naked. And of course, to some degree, they knew that they were naked before, but now this is saying now they are implied ashamed of it. Because at the very end of chapter 2, it said they were naked and they were not ashamed. And now they knew that they were naked. I, I think it's implying, and they were ashamed all of a sudden. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Clothing is a weird thing. All right? Clothing is a strange thing, and I don't fully understand the theme of nakedness throughout Scripture. I was telling some of the adult, adult you guys are all adults, but the volunteers um, on Friday that I almost made this entire sermon about, like, nakedness. But then I couldn't entirely, like, figure it out. I was like, this is a really strange thing. Because if you notice, in heaven, I know it sounds odd, right? I'm just talking about nakedness. In heaven, we're actually still clothed. That's interesting. So, yes, the garden, we were naked. But then there's something about, about being clothed in heaven that's, that's still good. And, in fact, even in this text, we see God clothing them. So, the fact that they made garments for themselves is not necessarily an evil thing. But it does reflect the fact that I believe clothing is essentially our first line of defense with each other. Right? I mean, can you, I, mean I think we can maybe just, just picture what it would be like if you walked in here naked. I mean, it's, it's like that dream. Have you guys ever had that dream? Where suddenly you look down, you're like, where's my clothes? And, and there's a fear there. There's an exposure there. There's this, this feeling that, oh man, my first line of defense is gone. Right? Why are we afraid of one another? Adam and Eve looked at each other in the garden and suddenly they were afraid of one another. And that's because I, I believe they saw themselves and they knew what they were capable of and then they looked at the other and said, oh, I know what you can do to me. 
Their eyes were open to the fact that they were sinners and the other was a sinner and that meant danger. That meant fear. And that meant covering and hiding from one another. I was, there's a, a quote by C.S. Lewis, I believe, just mentioning that those who are most prideful are often the people that are most aggravated by other people's pride. It's interesting. So if you find yourself aggravated at someone because they're prideful, it's most likely that your pride is having a match with their pride, and that's why you have such a problem with it. And in fact, I think that applies to a lot of our sin. We're going to see the sin in other people that is most common in us. The thing that we struggle with most is the thing that we're going to be most aggravated by in other people, or perhaps the thing that we're going to fear most in other people. So if I am a deceptive person, I'm not going to trust anybody because I know what I'm capable of. Now, this, this hit home for me because one of the things that I struggle with is people-pleasing. I, I really, I walk into a room of people and I want, immediately I'm on the one hand afraid of them, and on the other hand, I want to please them. I want them to like me. What I realized was, I'm afraid of them being critical of me. What does that mean about me? Perhaps I'm a critical person. Perhaps I am constantly evaluating other people. I was walking around the church when that thought hit me, and I literally just stopped. And I was like, oh, that's terrible. Am I a critical person? Yes. I know, I, in fact, as soon as I said it, I stopped because I was like, I know, that, I know that that's true. I know that my wife has pointed that out in me before. So we, are, we have this shame leading to fear, leading to hiding, suspicion of other people on a horizontal level, and I think that's what we see going on right here. And they made loincloths for themselves out of these fig leaves. And I think the reason that God makes new clo like clothes later on out of animal skins is that fig leaves really just don't make very, very good clothes. Um, we actually just planted a fig leaf in our backyard. So this is, this is the, the drawing that you guys get for tonight, okay? It's a fig leaf, in case that isn't clear. So here's a fig leaf. There it is, okay? So it's basically like three little fingers uh, with holes in between, okay? That's what they uh, are, are trying to make garments out of. You can imagine how that goes, okay? It's not, not great. It's rather pitiful. And you could certainly draw an analogy on the ways that we try to cover ourselves up. But we're not going to go there at this moment. All right. So now we're going to see the vertical component of this fallout, okay? There's fallout with one another. And it's honestly really, really sad if we just think about what Adam and Eve had and what Adam and Eve lost. And then I think the greater tragedy is here, starting in verse 8. I, I was struggling with how to even capture the sadness of what we're reading right here, right? Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. This is actually, this line right here, that, that Adam's response is where I'm getting this, this fallout and the progression, okay? He gives it to us right there. 
He was afraid. Okay, there's the fear. Because he was naked. Okay, that's the shame. So the shame led to fear, and I hid myself, so he hid. Now, he does not quite complete it. Do you guys remember what was before shame? Rebellion. Sin. So Adam gives every reason except for the main reason, and perhaps he himself doesn't quite understand it, so God helps him out. God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You didn't mention that. But here's the thing. If you are reflecting on the fact that you are naked and implied ashamed, that means that you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. And note how he puts that. He doesn't say, have you eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He's making it absolutely clear. Have you eaten of that tree that I commanded you not to eat? Sometimes I speak to Thomas like that. <laughs> Let me make it absolutely clear. Have you pushed your sister, who I told you, <laughs> I don't know if I said that, who I've told you not to push? Like, let's just make this absolutely obvious, the fact that you rebelled. I was, again, thinking about, how can we capture the, the, the sadness of this? And I thought, what would Jesus do if he was assigned this text and he walked up here and he taught us this text? When he got to this section, how would he act? I think in his heart, because again, I think it's possible that when it says the Lord God walking in the garden, that that's actually Jesus himself walking in the garden. So if, if that was him and he's thinking back to this moment He used to walk with Adam and Eve all the time, and it was wonderful. There was just full communion. There was full connection. There was no reason for Adam and Eve to blush in shame when he walked in. There was just this, you could say, chemistry where they were enjoying him and he was enjoying them, and they were honoring him and worshiping him as, as they ought to. And it was just this beautiful, unbroken communion and now, apparently this time of day comes, and he comes, and the first thought to that sound of him walking in the garden is, hide. Right? Just like my first thought when my dad opened the garage door was not, my dad's home. I can't wait to go and see him. It's, uh-oh. What's going to happen? What's his reaction going to be? Can I hide it? Can I avoid him? I want to disappear. That's their reaction. And so then God, in his mercy, just calls out to him, says, where are you? Of course, he knows where he is. He's just giving the opportunity to confess. Adam responds, I heard you. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then God gently, who told you that you were naked? Obviously, no one told Adam that he was naked. Adam told Adam that he was naked. Adam's conscience was telling him, you are guilty. No one else needed to condemn him. And then he gives him another chance. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Will you even confess it to me? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me 
She gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So as we go down this line, shame, fear, hiding, and the last thing, excuses. It's almost like right at this moment, Adam thinks maybe there's a a back door, right? The trap door didn't work. He found me. But maybe there's a back door. Maybe I can explain my way out of this. Maybe I can be a little bit clever myself. Because here's the thing, God. And like I said, we can relate to him a little bit here. We can give him something when, when he says, the woman that you gave to be with me, she was meant to be his helper. She was never meant to be the one that offered him and even encouraged him to eat, to disobey God. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's an excuse that covers up the fact that he disobeyed God. So God doesn't deal directly with the man. He actually says to the woman, okay, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Probably a little bit of blame shifting going on there too. It's so easy to make excuses for our sin. And so it's just, let's just take a minute and recognize that. Um, How many of you have made an excuse for your sin before? Okay. I did it last night. (laughs) I was, and it's, okay. I have a thing against people saying, you know, I'm just hangry. Okay. Hangry is not an excuse for sin. It's not valid. Okay. But there's a lot of things actually that we think might be valid excuses. And in the moment we think, of course I'm feeling like this. Of course I'm I'm going to be short with you. I'm going to be angry with you because, well, because this happened. Okay, so for me, last night, I was just tired. And Kate had spent all day with the kids, and she wanted 10 minutes to go on the porch and read a, read a book. And so I was like, that's totally legitimate. Yes, you can go. All right. What was me? I will stay and give Thomas a bath. All right. Because <laughs> I am a martyr. So I went and gave Thomas a bath. Okay. And then she comes in, not even 10 minutes later, and is like, hey, do you, you know, can I help you with this? Or do you want me to go do the dishes? And I'm like, no, I don't need any help. I'll just do it all. And I just, and she's like, okay. And then she went and did the dishes. And I had to go pretty much like a minute later and be like, I'm sorry. Right? But in that moment, it was so legitimate to me that I was the victim and she should understand that I'm tired too or something. I don't know. simply to point out the fact that we, we make excuses like all day long and uh, none of them are good enough to really truly cover our sin. If we get to the heart of it, sin is rebellion against God. Even that little comment against Kate where I was short with her, unkind to her, kind of accusing her in a way of mistreating me, which wasn't true, at the heart of that was this pride and rebellion against God. So we come to this, and I think the main thing I want you to walk away with is they rebel, and then every option they have, which is basically hide or make excuses, is just clearly and obviously not enough. It's it's pitifully, it, it falls short of anything that can actually take care of their problem. The world is bleeding out, and they have no recourse And we have no recourse. Uh, The only way out, if you think of it this way, if the fall is falling down into a pit, and then the Lord comes over and looks down and starts talking to us, the only way out is through him. 
So we can't just run and hide. And, and, and a lot of the world is going to be doing that. A lot of the world are acting like wounded animals who are going to bite you before they let you help them, right? And oftentimes we act like that too. A quick note on the world. Because of this, because of this chapter, we understand that all mankind is depraved, which means if you meet a person and they sin against you, you should not be surprised. This should change your outlook on life. If you're sinned against, of course you were sinned against. <laughs> and if you're, if you're working with an unbeliever and they bite, of course. Of course, this is most difficult if they're our own family, but they'll be our friends too. And we can't suddenly jump back in surprise and say, God, how could this happen to me? No. Your outlook in life should be, I understand that all mankind is fallen, and I won't be surprised or naive about that. That's why we're told to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, I already said this, um, but I'm going to make a couple applications. I've kind of jumped around a little bit. Number one is that uh, there is no such thing as trivial sin. All sin is rebellion against God. It's more of a principle. Number two is what I just said, and that is you, you really can't hide from God. And on the Christian level, let me just say, that's why confession of sin is so vitally important. Do you have someone that you're confessing sin to? When's the last time you actually did that? You went to someone who didn't know about your sin and you told them about it and you confessed to them. And of course it starts with God. How many times have you sinned and then you kind of just put up a wall and you don't want to meet God's eyes? And you say, well, it was a small enough thing, maybe he's going to overlook it, but then that small thing starts to drive a wedge between you and God because you know that if you actually go to a quiet time, he's going to bring that thing up. The second that you start praying, he's not going to let that thing go. And so you just start avoiding him. You can't hide from God. He sees it all. And he wants, in fact, he will seek you out if you're a believer. He already has and he will again. So don't avoid him, but run to him. Which really leads us to this third, this third point, which is uh, there's only one way out. And of course, for those of us who are believers in the room, we understand that this is a, a ringing condemnation of any kind of legalism. We cannot save ourselves. We are absolutely hopeless on our own. And we must trust in God to be that salvation. And that's exactly what God's going to do. Uh, and I'm so excited for next week where God gets to respond to this situation and ultimately offer the gospel. And it's amazing that even right here in Genesis we see the gospel. That gospel of, you can't save yourself, I'm going to do it. Trust me. Will you repent of your sin and believe? Because at the end of the day, uh, we can fear God, but he's not like our earthly fathers who sin. He is a good and gracious God. It's perhaps the saddest thing if Jesus was walking into the garden was that 
Adam and Eve seemed to think that he was going to be, that he was going to right then and there just wipe them out. They just ran. And they seem to have forgotten the fact that God is actually a gracious God. He's a slow to anger kind of God. And so he doesn't go in and just breathe fire. He just starts a conversation. And, and what a testament to his, his long-suffering and his mercy to us. So praise the Lord for that. We're about to sing, Lord, I need you. Actually, I'm going to invite the band up, um, and we'll sing that. But it's just a fitting song for this because what do we see in, in Genesis 3? We see, Lord, I need you. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that you gave us, and I pray that you would convict our hearts, convict us of our sin, and if there's anyone in the room that's hiding from you, whether they're a believer that's just clinging to some sin, however petty they might argue it is, Lord, I pray that you would, that you would prod them in your grace to bring it to the light. And Lord, I pray that if there's any individuals in here who have not run to you for salvation, that they are still clinging on to hiding from you or their excuses or whatever coverings they've made for themselves, that they would recognize their absolute helplessness apart from you and that they would turn to you and trust you because you actually offer them the way out. Lord, you offer them the, the cure. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us people who make it their mission in life to offer that cure to a world that is bleeding out. Lord, we want to submit to you and give ourselves to you as your servants. And we pray this. We pray this all in the name of Jesus.